0: All right. Hey, um, glad you could be here. Are, how many of you doing the Bible read-through like this year? I mean, I don't, know, I don't do it every year, but if you have, I, you, just, you, you should feel really good about yourself that you just got through Leviticus, because we're going to talk some about that today, and, and uh, some of that's brutal, right? I mean, you just like sacrifices, you know, what do you do with the kidney and the fat and all this? You know, it's like, God, what is going on with all this? So. Anyway, and the first part of Numbers can be kind of brutal, right? All the naming out all the people and their jobs of the tabernacle, and, you know, that's... But by by, by now, by today, is where you get to Numbers 13, it gets interesting again, right? You get, you know, the... Numbers 13 is actually pretty funny, right? Because that's, in a, in a weird way, because they're complaining, and then Noah's... Or Noah. Moses is complaining, saying, you know, God, just kill me. I, I'm just sick of it. I can't, you know, I, these aren't my people. These are yours. Like, just kill me. And God says, you know... And, and then, of course, if they want food, I'll, if they want meat, I'll give them meat, right? They're going to be so sick of it, it's going to be coming out of their nostrils, right? It's just this interplay between God and the people and Moses. It's, anyway, it's interesting. So, all right, I'll, I'll open in prayer and we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, you are a merciful, merciful and gracious God. And you're not a trite God to deal with either, Lord, and we understand that in your holiness, Lord, and just ask your spirit to be present here today that we would uh, understand what it is you've communicated to us thousands of years ago, and in and, um, Christ's name, amen. All right, so last week we, we started with the Exodus, so this class is about the gospel according to the prophets, and all the elements of the gospel that foreshadow Christ. And particularly Christ's death and resurrection. And so today we're going to be talking about atonement, which is a much bigger subject than than I realized years ago. I, I, you know, there's it's it's a very deep and complex subject, and I didn't know that there's actually a lot of arguments among Christians about what atonement means. And um, I thought that was one of the things in Christianity we had nailed down, but. You know, a good book, if you're very interested. If you guys are familiar with William Lane Craig, he's a, one of the, he's a philosopher, he's a Christian, he's probably the greatest uh, apologist of our time right now. He, he's just amazing in debates. He debates a lot of atheists and stuff, and I, I really enjoy listening to him. But he's got a, he, he wrote a, this is his paper, essentially, on the atonement. And it's, you know, this is a subject where I really, like any time you learn more about something, you realize how ignorant you are. This is kind one of one of those, right you realize this there, there's a lot more going on than than uh, than i than I even realize you know it's, so anyway oh, boy that's hard to see isn't it? Well mo- fortunately, most of my type won 't look like this, but this is first John one nine, and uh, if you're if you're like me you 've worn this verse out. I wear this verse out this is you know, it's, it's the first John is written so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's written to, for Christians, and it's all the things that you can look at and, and sort of assess, do, 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 I, do I love Jesus? Do I know I have eternal life? And the first thing you have is confession of sin, right? That's, that's a good evidence. Like, if the Holy Spirit's weighing you down because you've sinned, that's a good evidence that, that you have eternal life. And, and, and it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, he will, so that He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Wonderful verse. So it's not just forgiveness that we have here, but it's also the idea of cleansing. And w- when you read through Leviticus, there's a lot there about atonement, forgiveness, and and particularly cl- cleans- cleansing that we'll talk about. So, um, so let's 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 look at this. So. First of all, this this so so we go clear back to the garden. So we've already gone back to the garden. We looked at Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelon, this idea there's going to be this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And God is is, uh, providing a way, the idea that the serpent is going to strike the seed of the woman's heel, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. We saw this is right immediately when there's sin in the garden, um, God's already formulating, he's already formulated a plan in eternity past for what to do with that. But you have something else going on, is when you have sin in the garden, the first thing Adam and Eve try to do is cover themselves, right? They were naked and not ashamed, right? Completely exposed and opened and no shame at all. But once they sin, now, now that's gone. It says, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened I don't know, they walk around and realize they weren't naked, like, wait, hey, wait, we could in close. But anyway, that's not what's happening, right? The idea is, is now something else has entered into the equation. And it says, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made for themselves waist coverings. So they're trying to cover themselves. And of course, now, instead of being open to God as well, they're hiding from God. So this idea, they've kind of sewed fig leaves together, and, they've, and they're covering themselves up, right? This is one of the first fallouts from sin and so later on a few verses later you discover that it says God it says the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them so God actually provide now at this point provides them clothes right they're no longer naked now they're going to be clothed and he's going to provide them skins so the idea, he's going to they're going to cover up now so where, where do these skins come from yeah, they're animals, right? Yes. In a type, you know, there's a lamb who was sacrificed before the beginning of the world. Yes. Revelation. Yes, as John says. Yes. Right. So the skin's going to require now the death of an animal, right? They're going to they're going to have they're going to cover them with skin. So so first they try to cover themselves, right? And then they're going. Then God provides a covering for them. So and. Another thing that's very interesting about this that relates to this is, you know, when Christ was crucified, he, he was laid bare, open, shamefully naked on a cross, completely 100% exposed, right? The, they gabbled for his clothes. They took all his clothes, and that was a common practice. I mean, the Romans were really good at crucifying people. They, they knew how to bring public shame. That was part of it, is you would be openly raised up and naked, So when Christ was crucified, um, that was part of it. And he says, according to the Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. So he went went into this this same territory and bore himself, his nakedness, to the world. And through that shame and through that mechanism is God's going to provide the real covering. (coughs) So... Now so when you get up to the book of the Exodus, right, you have they create all this religious furniture, and the key piece of furniture that they create is called the Ark of the Covenant. If you all have seen my favorite movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're probably familiar with that. Right? So the now the cover on the ark was called the mercy seat. And that's and they had two cherubim with their wings covering the top of this mercy seat. And they created this and it was placed into the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle, and it was closed off. And, and as we'll look at a little bit here in Leviticus, that the high priest only went in there once a year. But this was the place where, where God would be. He, the cloud would come down and the presence of God would be on the, the mercy. It was called the mercy seat or the atoning cover. That's where God would be. And, that's where, and, and when the high priest went in there, they had to sprinkle with blood. And if they didn't do things right, the high priest would die. And if anyone goes in there at the wrong time of year, they would die. But this idea of this cover is is a word that we're going to get when we get, we're going to talk about Day of Atonement today, this Yom Kippur, this word is this covering, and that covering is is called the atoning cover or the mercy seat. So this is the same sort of idea of Adam and Eve covering their sin, is the idea is that here's going to be this covering of sin, right, this idea, and and this, and this, um, this word, this, the Greek word you get out of the Septuagint, it's the same word that's used like in Romans 5 where it talks about the atoning, the propitiating sacrifice, which that word propitiate comes from the Latin, Latin translation. And we'll use this term propitiate. This is another, one, now it's going to be a, one of these words that's fairly loaded, but, but it comes from this idea of this covering. This idea of this covering and the in the, the verb for this cover is is kafar, I guess. I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch, but this is the idea: is to cover sins or to atone for. So you have the mercy seat where the presence of God they go in once a year. This is this is idea of a covering that God would cover the the sins, right? And so this is this is going to be one of the. Um, Chief pieces of furniture. If you've been reading, if you've been doing your Bible read through, you know that the ark was a central piece of furniture. There were were a group of people, their whole job was when they moved the tabernacle, when the cloud lifted up, right, their job was to cover up the tabernacle and use the poles and and move it, right, and it's very prescribed um, exactly how to go about doing that. By the time you get to um, Saul and David, even when you get into the numbers, you're going to see when they carried it, it was actually carried out before their enemies, right? It was actually used as a as a way to um, defeat their enemies. Um, of course, it became, <coughs> well, I won't get into that too much. But that's, so, so that's this idea of this mercy seat, it's called. The mercy seat, where God's presence was, was this idea of of covering. And this word atonement sort of is rooted in this word and we see atonement has a lot of dimensions to it, but this is one of them, this idea of, of, a, of a cover. That make sense? <coughs> All right, so back, to, so back to the Exodus. We're going to come back to this. So, so last, last week we were looking at the Exodus, and we see that there's this pattern that's being developed in the Exodus that the Gospel writers use, in, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at last week, where the life of Christ, a lot of what goes on with the life of Christ, mimics the Exodus events. You even, you even have Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. He's the second Moses. He's the one that's giving the law. So you have a, and, and you'll find in, in the New Testament that Christ is referred to as the firstborn son, like in, in Hebrews 1 or in Colossians 1. And this, the idea of firstborn is not born first, it's the idea of preeminence. It's, it's the rightful heir. And when um, Moses goes before Pharaoh, the Lord is, says, the Pharaoh says, "This says the Lord. Israel is my firstborn son." So that's, a, that's a term used for Israel. And he says, "I say to you, let my son go that he may." serve me. If we refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. As you know, Exodus, one of the things at the beginning is they're trying to kill the firstborn males. In the, and Moses was almost the victim of that. Right? And we find out later when they leave and they go through the Red Sea that the Egyptian army, is they're the ones that end up being drowned. So, So, so we, we talked about the ten plagues, about the judgments on the gods of Egypt. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, particularly the tenth plague. But there's this idea of a, of a firstborn son. So Israel was the firstborn, and then we're going to find Christ as the new Israel is, becomes also the firstborn son. So we talk about this polemic, the Exodus as a polemic against the gods of Egypt. So all the, all the various um, <coughs> plagues were against specific gods. Like, you know, you open with the Nile turning to blood. Well, the Nile was the lifeblood of some of their gods, and there was all kinds of gods that are associated with the Nile. That's what, pr- that's what provided all the fertility to that region. And so all, there was a whole group of pantheon of gods that were associated with that. And so turning the Nile to blood is very symbolic of God judging those particular gods. And you go on and on. They worship cows, they worship the sun, Ra, you know, and so all, there's all these various judgments. And we finally get down to the death of the firstborn. You're dealing right at the heart. This is going to be the tenth plague. This is the plague that eventually is going to force them to let Israel go. So, unlike other ancient Near East rulers, Pharaoh did not merely rule for the gods. He was considered literally one of the gods. So Pharaoh, much like the, well, very similar to probably the leader of North Korea right now, was be, was treated as a god by the people. He was literally a god. In fact, of all the responsibilities of being a god, one of them was to, is to maintain order. <coughs> the Pharaoh, so the Pharaoh's duty was to defeat the, the um, was called Matis. Ma, this idea of order among many things, and the and the goddess Mat was the goddess of. Cosmic balance and order and many other things. There's a little glyph of her. if you look her up on Wikipedia, that would be something you'd find on an Egyptian hieroglyph, was a picture of this goddess Mott, the goddess of order. So it's re- so, th- so one of the responsibilities of the Pharaoh is to re- retain order. Now, what do you see happening with order through the plagues? It's being completely disrupted. Right? God, is, God is showing he's distinguishing himself. As, well, you think you can maintain order here. You deal with, you know, here's some hail, here's some, here's some locusts, here's the sun. You know, you can't, you have no control over any of this. And finally, when you get to the firstborn son, right? And by the way, when Pharaoh had a child, that was considered a divine act. And, and there's other gods that this was associated with, but this was a divine act to have a kid. And now, now this god was completely helpless to maintain order. The Pharaoh was completely unable. None of his magicians were able to maintain any sort of order. The magicians early on could replicate to some degree some of the plagues, but not to the scale. And so God is, as it says in, in Exodus 12:12, 12, 12, these were the judgments on the gods of Egypt. And this, the final judgment was the final one that was going to let them go. So, in 12.12, it says, I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. Right? Now, notice I put the Lord in all caps. That's his divine name, which we learned back in Exodus 3, which Exodus 6 tells us that was a name, that, that, was, that was his God's name that was to be revealed, to his, his covenant name that was to be revealed to his people that was not revealed earlier. So <coughs> that's so. So this is going to be a central part of of the Exodus event is this idea of the death of the firstborn son, because obviously we're going to have something kind of mimic, mimic that. So, what, so what's going on? So God God is is judging the Egyptians. Does that makes sense. At least kind of the setup. You've read the story. Is there anything? So then we get to and we get into Genesis. I'm sorry, Exodus 12. You get the I'm going to go ahead and turn to, turn to Exodus 12. Let's begin reading a little bit of this. And it says, so again, this is all in the context of the last plague. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to the house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. In proportion to what each one should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you should, you should take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of the raw or, boiled, raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roast it with fire, both its heads and its legs, along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall completely burn with fire." Now you shall eat it in this way, with your garment belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. They're going to exit quickly here. They need to be ready to go. They don't have time for bread to rise. For on that night I will fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to animals, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that's the first Passover. That's the event, and it's connected with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which it's going to segue into. So, <coughs> that's, so, And by the way, you'll notice the Passover here, the individually in each house, as you notice by the time you get to Deuteronomy, a lot of the procedures have changed. By the time you get to Deuteronomy, they're not to do it in their own household. Right? You bring your lamb to the tabernacle, and that's so. So the so the laws about what happens with um, the Passover change. And by the way, this is the only chapter that you're going to deal with with Passover in the book of Exodus. You're going to see it later in in the other books of Moses. But this is the chapter. This is the initial Passover. And there are some things that are that are going to be obvious here if you've read the New Testament right, with. With um, <clears throat> in the opening of the book of John, you have John the Baptist seeing Jesus and saying, "Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world." So obviously, John the Baptist, probably through the Holy Spirit and his understanding of Isaiah, understood that Jesus was this Lamb. So when you ever see this reference to a Lamb, it's referring to this particular Lamb. This Lamb was the one that was going to have its blood shed, and its blood put on the, on the doors, on the, on the sides and on the top of the doors. So that when the angel or the destroyer came through, the Lord would prevent the destroyer from killing the firstborn in there. Right? And that would be the firstborn, not just of the people, but of the animals as well. Right? So we can see that this is a lamb without blemish. You can see it's got to be a perfect lamb. You've got to go pick your best, best lamb. And you're going to bring it into your household for four days. So you bring it in on the tenth, and then you're going to slaughter it on the fourteenth. I mean, I didn't grow up with animals much, but I could imagine ha- being on a farm. Does anyone had a farm and had lambs? Did anyone? Is anyone? Yeah. Was it? I mean, did, would it be hard to bring a, ha- a lamb into your household for a while and then slaughter it? Yeah, they're really cute. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's obvious when you see a lamb. It's like you know, yeah, it's like a puppy dog, right? I mean, or maybe even more so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's intentional, right? That, you know this isn't just a random act this is the, the shedding of blood is not something that, that is trite to God, even though you're going to see a lot of shedding of blood this is not a and this isn't like the gods of the Canaanites demanding his pound of flesh there's something else going on here right? but yeah that's part of it and so um you know there's other patterns you to see in exodus later on it says As none of the bones will be broken and this seems to be something that that David points out in the Psalms as well. And you remember when Jesus was on the cross and they, they, they break the legs of the other two folks on the, on the crosses, but they come to Christ and they stop short because they realize he's already dead, right? And so this is another idea of the fulfillment. This is a correlation. This is one of those typology things that, that Jesus wasn't going to break any of his bones and the lamb's bones here were, were not to be broken. So there's even, even small details like that, but you begin to see there's pretty... It's pretty this is one of those types that's pretty hard to miss, Especially when you get to the the Last Supper, which we'll talk about, I think, you know, briefly. But you can see there's sort of a pattern. There's a sort of a pattern in, in God's in the Passion Week. Right? So so if you so now we have a new month. They're going to create a new month, which is called Nissan here. Later, I think it's called a Bead. They changed the names of the calendars for some reason. But but part of the idea is you is when you change calendars, you, it's like something new. You're entering into a new era. A new, now you're, you're entering into an era where the beginning of the year is now different. Now they had different calendars. They had calendars that were um, civic calendars and then they had their um, sacred calendars like the one that was created here. But the idea is now you have something new. You have something new that's happening. You change the calendars for. And so, so now they're going to have a new calendar to be begin in Nissan. And so on the 10th of this month your land was chosen. You brought it into your house. Now if you try to correlate this with the life of Christ, who's, who's the Passover lamb, which Paul says very explicitly, he he enters Jerusalem. If you cor- correspond this with um, what we would call Palm Sunday, which is, by the way, the last, I think it's going to be our last session, will be on Palm Sunday, so it'll be interesting. Maybe we'll bring this back up again. So that you think of that as sort of the selection of the lamb has been chosen. Jesus, as we've been talking, has been been on his way to Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows he's going there to die. He even knows he's going to be crucified, if you read between the lines. He knows he's going to be flogged. He knows he's going to be spit on. He knows he's going to be rejected. And he knows he's going to be crucified. But he knows he's going to rise again on the third day. So now he's, enter- he's entered in Jerusalem. He's initially treated as a king. But you can see by the end of the week, he's going to be, he's be rejected. So, so he's going to be in that household. And if, you, and if there is a correspondence with this Passion Week and this time... But if you go to um, four days later, you have... Um, now, of course, how this corresponds and, and whether, you know, traditionally we have Christ being crucified on Friday. Some people think he was crucified on Thursday. I mean, that's not terribly... You know, was, was it that it was the Last Supper? Was that truly the Passover meal? Or, you know, I don't know. I'll let you guys worry about those things. I, I think about them a little bit. But, but here you're, you're getting to the point where this is a corresponding to when the lamb was going to be killed. So you clearly are getting a correspondence with Christ's crucifixion. I'm I, I've been very surprised with with um, you know how little our society knows about the Bible nowadays, right? I, I I think I remember talking with somebody and and I was we were talking for some reason about you know the crazy way that the church figures out when Easter is, right? It's it's very complicated, you know, thing Easter's early this year, but and I always said, well, Why don't they just do it the Sunday after Passover? and and she's, well, that's really... She's saying, no, that's mixing two religions. And I'm like, I'm like man... <laughs> th- I was like, really? That's quite a statement, right? I mean, th- th- it's not at all, right? These, there's, a, there's a reason why Jesus was crucified on Passover. This, and probably one of the most obvious things... If I mean, I think anybody who's read Exodus and, and read the crucifixion story is, puts this together, right? So, <clears throat> and of course, then you have on... The Christ is going to rise from the dead. Perhaps... I put down is maybe that, that's the time when Christ had another correspondence with Christ going through the Red Sea. Last year, week we had going through the Red Sea with his baptism. Here I have with his, his resurrection, perhaps. So, so anyway, hopefully this is one that you've already kind of seen. right You see, you, you see this idea of this Passover lamb. Now, Christ is going to be referred to as the Passover lamb in the New Testament. But you know where he's really referred to as the lamb over and over and over again? is in John's Revelation, over and over and over again, right? That's 30 times, if you count, right? Far more than anywhere else is is Jesus is presented as a crucified lamb. You have this amazing setting in Revelation 5. You know, there's this scroll that that no one's worthy to open, and people are crying because no one's worthy to open the scroll. And then comes this slain lamb, and the slain lamb is the one that's worthy to open the scroll. It's interesting. I think in that same chapter, he's also viewed as a lion as well but he's the lamb he's the slain lamb christ is that this vision that john has christ is still a crucified lamb yeah. and 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 it's because of that that he's worthy to open the scroll and that becomes the paradigm for for the rest of the book of revelation he's referred to as you know the the lamb that's he's still bearing the marks of the crucifixion at that point so I may get to that at the end. Of, see how things go. So, so hopefully you've seen this. This sort of this is one you probably haven't missed. Some of the maybe the other subtle things about you read in the Exodus you you is this idea of a Passover lamb. So this this becomes a significant marker in the Old Testament. This is this is you know, 12 to 1500 years before Christ. You have you have this particular event as providing a, a picture ultimately of what God is going to, going to do, right? And there's a lot of different things going on here. So it's, it's not just this provision, this passing over, this protection part. There's a lot of other dimensions to what's happening here. So first thing, you can make an argument. And some people say this, this pe- people actually argue these things to some degree. But one of the things you see is this idea of substitution. By substitution, you mean that instead of me dying, the lamb is dying. So here you're shedding the blood, and the blood is a symbol of life. You shed the blood, that's, that's death. This lamb is dying. Because this lamb's dying, my firstborn son is not going to die. So this is this idea. So we've had the idea of atonement, we have this idea of covering sin, now we have the idea of substitution. Now when we talk about Isaiah 53, this will become very, very clear, that Jesus... And the, the lamb there is dying for us in our place by his stripes, you know, by his, his wounds. Right? We all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our, we're going to get to that as well, this idea of our, our, our sin being placed on him. But this idea of this lamb is dying on our behalf. That's important. That's important because this is, this is what happens at the cross. Christ becomes sin for us. Right? This idea that so, so atonement is not just the covering of sin, but the idea that now sin has been paid for. That's this idea of substitution. And clearly this lamb is taking the place of the firstborn. So you're this idea of, of substitution that's happening as well. So, and that's where this word Passover comes from. Because the, the, the verb here, this idea, um, this verb, which I don't know how to say in Hebrew, but is, this idea is to protect or to pass over. So the idea is you can see this destroyer is going through the house. And, th- and we find out the destroyer is the Lord himself. Right? It's the Lord, the one, that's going to be executing these judgments. And, um, and it's this destroying angel that comes through and, and he's this, that's going to kill. But this idea that it's going to pass over. The blood is seen and you're going to pass over. The idea. Um, <clears throat> you can see this, again, this is clearly referenced by the New Testament authors. Right? First. First Peter is going to reference this frequently, this idea this lamb without blemish or spot, this idea that, that Jesus, what qualified him to be the right sacrifice is he was the lamb that, that had not sinned. That he was the blemished the one that had no, no spots. Right? So, so hopefully you, you pick that up when you read the book of Exodus. Um, any, any comments on anything you see in the Passover? So, of course, by the time you get to the Last Supper, I'll just, I'll just turn to Luke 22 real quick. Of course, this is in the other Gospels as well. Now, obviously, the Gospels are going to make this connection for you, make it pretty easy. <coughs> so, this is during the Passion Week. This is a long chapter. <coughs> I'm going to pick up in verse 7. Says now the first day of unleavened bread came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So we find this unleavened bread is connected with the Passover. And the idea is the unleavened bread. There's there's two. I, I believe there's two reasons why the, you don't use leaven. One of them you have already seen because they're in a hurry. You got you, you need to make this bread quickly. You you need to get out of there. There's no time where you know they're gonna plunder the Egyptians. In fact, God is going to turn the hearts of everybody so that they just want the Hebrews out of there to the point where they're saying, here, take my gold, take my earrings, just get out of here, right? And they're going to, it says they plunder the Egyptians and they're going to leave. The part of this idea of unleavened bread is is in, hurry, is in a hurry. But also you're going to see in, in Scripture that, that the leaven has become... Many things, it's something that grows, but it's going to be symbolic of sin and this idea that Paul's going to talk about in Corinthians is this idea is... If you're going to have a festival to God, you can't have sin present. I, I have a Jewish friend who doesn't really like Christians much, but he likes me for some reason. But he he takes these things very very seriously, right? They, he does, they fully clean their house out, can't have any leaven in their house, and um, but that's the idea to get that out of there. You can't you can't you can't have a festival to God when there's when there's sin there. So so there's a lot there being represented with with the unleavened bread, right? And then you get to verse 19. So he's, so he's eating his Passover meal. In verse 19 he says, And he had taken some of the bread and gave him thanks. And he broke it and, and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is, a, this is something that we practice. We, here we do it, do it every month. This idea is this symbolic of the breaking, eating of the bread. It's the breaking of, of the body. And then and then he continues, and in this way he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we haven't talked about the new covenant versus the old covenant. We're not going to get to that today. But as you know, another thing in Exodus, where we get the giving of the law and this idea of the Mosaic covenant and the superiority of the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah and elsewhere. We're going to talk about that. But here the idea is, is there's something new that's been happening. We're going from Moses and this sacrificial system onto the ultimate sacrifice for which this sacrifice of this lamb is only a, a, a type, a shadow of which the reality is going to be found in Christ's sacrifice. Now, the book of Hebrews goes on and on about this, the superiority of, of Christ over Moses, the superiority of his one sacrifice, over all these various other sacrifices right as well so that's this idea of this this new covenant we'll 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 see that connection when we get there but so so you can see the new testament is clearly drawing on on this particular event this is a central event Wayne, do you think it would be too much of a of a detour at this point to to talk about the last supper and and the communion or do you that some other time in the sense that mm-hmm. this is one one of the major wedges between Evangelical Protestants and sure. Catholics and the Orthodox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even Luther mm-hmm. changed a little bit but he would not give up on the literality sure. of what happened in the last summer. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. We drink grape juice. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, mm-hmm. what is, is that blood? or Well, it's symbolic. Mm-hmm. Well, why not put a picture of a grape on, on the screen like mm-hmm. symbolic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we take, we take it symbolically where yeah, yeah, yeah. most of the history of the church says you guys take seven days, literally, but you don't yeah, take yeah. the fact that this is his body yeah. in some magical way, and this is his blood. Yeah, yeah. So, um, do you understand? After all this study the you know, preparation for this? Yeah, you know, in, you know, in John, when Jesus Jesus is getting at the height of his popularity, everyone's coming to him, and then he starts saying, "You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood," right? Jesus needed to take a seminar on how to win people over. Right? <laughs> people, people were offended by the idea, you know, eat my flesh, and, and everyone's, everyone's walking away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And I, and I identify, this is Peter's other confession. He says, you have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? Right? It's like, I don't know. All the, for me, it's like a, it, it, all my chips are in. With Jesus, I, it's like he's got—he's the, the words of eternal life. I'm all in, but then Jesus seems to make it very clear to me. He says these things are—they come to him, and he says, "Look, he says these things are spirit. Right? These things, you know, you know, people say the vampire stories and Dracula all come from this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And and um, so I, I'm in the camp that they are. It's like my wedding ring is not my wedding. It's it's, it's not my marriage, but it's a symbol of my marriage. And I I, I and I so i would agree agree with the evangelicals on this that that these are a very important symbol and and much like the bread is a symbol of his body you know the same as all the other various symbols you have of christ so that's kind of that's kind of where i'm at i i understand there's that obviously has caused a great amount of division i i have you know, Catholic friends, and we discuss these things. And obviously, for if you've grown up in a Catholic church, this is very important that this there's this idea of transubstantiation, that this actually literally, in some mystic way, becomes Christ's body, right? And, and um, you know, I, I listen to them, and I, you know, I, I disagree, but I don't... Um, yeah, so I, I guess there's a lot more that could be said about that, but that I...
1: You know? There's
0: literal blood that was shed everywhere, you know, through yeah. throughout the progressive yeah. Revelation and yeah. Anyway, and I, I think one of the things that evangelicals get bothered with is in Hebrews is the idea that that the sacrifice was once, right? And so people will say, well, if, if this is his body, then he's being re-sacrificed over and over again. I, I don't, I don't know if that's an argument. That's an argument people say. Eh. But um, just just much like he says he's the door. I, I don't. When I go up to Jesus, I don't. I'm not going to look for a handle, right? So I, I think these are these are kind of the metaphors. He's. I don't think he's literally a lamb or literally a lion or literally, you know. So and I, so I think when he tells his disciples, look, all these guys that left because they 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 think I'm crazy because I'm saying eat my flesh. He tells them, look, these these things are spirit. These are things. These things are there's something else going on here. There's some other. Right? These things are important. Obviously. God takes a great amount of time in painting these pictures. Right? You, had an entire, you, you, you get this entire section of the law all dealing with all these sacrifices. This must, just the sheer volume of work talking about these sacrifices, it must be significant. As growing up, you always talk about the plenary inspiration of the Bible, the idea that it all matters. Well, all these things must matter. Even, the, even you read these lists of names and numbers and the counts, there must be some reason that God put this in there. Right? As Pastor Paul sometimes says, there's no wasted words. And so there's something very, very important about these sacrifices. And, and I'll have to, I have to plead. First Corinthians 13. It says, now we see in a mirror darkly, but then we will see face to face. I don't have my mind wrapped around all of this, for sure. But uh, it's obviously extremely important. Yeah. yeah I find it fascinating to you know, kind of see the, the range that the uh, disciples um, demonstrate. You know, it's sometimes being so utterly thick. And other times it's like, okay, you know, yeah, I'll yeah. grab this, you know. And, and, yeah, yeah. and you know, there's sometimes where it's, you know, you know um, when Jesus you, you're going to be behind these things because, you know, you're speaking. You know yeah, Yet, yet with this, like, something that these men, is, yeah, as many of the Jewish tradition, this is really radical. It's like, okay, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting to see how in some ways, you know, again, it's just fallible human beings. You know, they were, yeah. there were yeah. times when they were very, very locked in, and other times where they're like, uh, you know, we're kind of down. Well, what's interesting is with the disciples is, is by t- you mentioned Peter's confession, and He he tells them, now the game plan's afoot. I've mentioned this, right? He tells them exactly what they're going to do three times. He says, and, and by the third time, he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. They're going to beat me. They're going to flog me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to, I'm going to die, right? Not a metaphor. But they still don't, yes, right. That is clear. He tells them this is exactly what's going to happen. But they still don't, it's like it doesn't. You know, he tells them that, and then they start arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Did you not just hear what he said, right, you know, that he's, that he's going there to suffer and die? Well, again, yeah, it's, like, it's like human fallibility. I mean, they were, maybe we're, we're so excited, pumped up, seeing all these miracles, all these amazing things are going on. There's obviously, you know, yeah. this, this, this is a man imbued by power, power from God, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, they, they, they probably got really excited about, hey, we're in the inside track on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, Judas for sure thought he was on the end. Like, man, this is I, I got I better get a, I better get my stock in on this early. This guy's gonna be right. You know, it's interesting. And you, you bring that up too. I mentioned that third time. And you get to the Gospel of Mark. that's interesting when you read the Gospel of Mark. Is there's there's really almost nothing in the Gospel of Mark that says why Jesus had to die. I mean. Clearly, you know, you have Peter's confession. He's going there to die. It's like you have to sort of pick these things up from the Gospel of Mark, which was the first Gospel written. I think you have two statements by Christ that give you a little bit of lens into why. Like like in the very section in Mark 10, he says he has to give his, he's giving his life as a ransom for many. So, that, so the third time he tells him what's happening, he says he's giving his life as a ransom for many. So you read that, okay, what does that mean? What's that word, ransom? What is he talking about? He's got to give himself a ransom. Of course... If you understood the backdrop of the Exodus, because this is, this is all in the backdrop of the Exodus, this idea of slaves being freed, right? There's, but that's sort of a hint. Then, then you get the little bit of a hint at the Last Supper where he says, this is, and in Mark you get this as well, this is a new covenant in my blood. That's, that's all you get in Mark for explaining why Jesus had to die. You have to read between the lines in Mark. Now, of course, the other Gospels, and especially when you get to John, right, the reasons become more magnified. But it's really, I find it interesting in Mark, is like, you read that, well, okay, why are you doing this, right? But, but the idea is, you, as the reader, you're supposed to have this backdrop to understand what Jesus is doing. By the time you get to John, it's, things become very, very clear. I mean, I think the other gospel writers have a lot more to say about why Jesus had to do that. I just find that interesting, that, that Mark, like, I mean, I read the same thing and you read the Old Testament. There's, you wish there was commentary, there's so many things that happen, like, okay, was that... You don't know, is this descriptive, or is this prescriptive? Like, the classic one was with Jephthah's daughter. Did he really sacrifice him, or did that mean something else? There's no comment, right, telling you. I find the same thing even with Cain and Abel, when you're dealing with the first sacrifice. It just says, there's, they, they, you know, one they one each did their sacrifice, but it doesn't tell you why. It doesn't. You just sort of hit the ground running. With, okay, there's a sacrifice. What's going on here, right? So... So these are things that, over time you 're to piece together and, and medi- that 's like in Psalm one the idea is is, is the man who meditates on god 's word you know the idea is not it 's not Eastern meditation where you empty your mind you, you, these are the meditation where you think about things and roll them around in your mind, and you, you God wants us to read these things and start like a puzzle, putting these things together. so when you read the gospel of mark i 've read the exodus, okay, I note the rants I know what 's going on here i 'm going to put that together now, and now I, now I you should be able to piece together why this is. Now, the beauty of it is, for people that don't want to believe, when you have a hard heart, these things can become opaque. And God's, God's okay. You're gonna, you you have a hard heart? I'll make this opaque. It won't make any, you know, it's going to be opaque to you. And so there's some of that that's going on as well. So anyway, that would be a long tangent to go on. But, but that's something that is, that is definitely worth discussing. I will say this: There's a lot more going on than even I begin to even understand what's going on on that. So, yeah. So um, it's funny. My my kids go to Cedar Tree, and one of the S- so even even among evangelicals, there's different views on, on this, right? Like, um, so one of Zeke's friends, his whole senior thesis on why why if you're going to have a real communion, you should use real wine. That was his whole thesis. Of course, he goes to the New Saint Andrews over in Moscow, which, which you know they. So they subscribe to, to that view, and you know, so anyway, so even among evangelicals, there's 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 different views on these things. Let alone between Catholics and Orthodox, and so. But for sure, this stuff is even if even if you just take symbolic form, it's not something to take lightly. This is this is a serious matter. It's not. Right, so I will say that at least. So. Oh. So another theme, and boy, it's already quarter to So I'm going to mention this, this idea of this triumph. over. I'm just going to mention this in passing, but I love Colossians 2. Um, I'm going to read Colossians 2, just while we're here. I want to connect this. It says, I'll, I'll pick them in verse 9, For in him, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, right? Jesus is Jesus is God in flesh, and in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over every ruler and every authority. And in Him you are also circumcised with circumcision performed without hands, and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. When He dies, we die. In which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God. He rises, we rise. Who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having cancelled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He took our penalty, he paid our debt. Debt's been paid. When he had dis Now listen this. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, him being Jesus. So the very event that looks like complete defeat, like on the road to Emmaus, this Christ has been killed, in actuality, this this is the moment of greatest victory and triumph. And of course, in the Exodus event, you get the same thing, this idea of triumph, which you get this you get this song of Moses in Exodus 15 with the destruction of the Egyptian army. So all this idea of of God triumphing over his enemies is also being played in with the cross. This is this is God's greatest triumph over his enemies is this is and, and of course, that's a subject for which we could go on for. Yours is this th- th- what happens here. So so be aware that even though you have this death that can looks like defeat, you, there's a triumph element that's going on here as well. What's cool about... There's three songs of Moses, right? This is the first one. You get one in Deuteronomy 32 as well. But you also get a song of Moses in the book of Revelation. The great victory, so that foreshadowing the event that's going to happen when Christ returns. There's going to be another one of these triumphs. And... It's going to reference the blood of the lamb. It's the song of the lamb. In fact, the song of Moses in the book of Revelation is is it's, it's actually called Moses this, in the book, the song of Moses, the song of the lamb. Right? I think this is this is in Revelation um, 15, I believe. So, so the Bible sews these together from Genesis to Revelation. You have this lamb, right? Well, from Exodus to Revelation. Well, you, you get it you get it in Genesis too, as well. So I'll throw that in there. All right. <coughs> So you've been doing your Bible read-through, and you just survived the book of Leviticus. And and I don't know how many times I've read the first six six chapters of Leviticus. and I'm like, what is going on here, right? This doesn't. Every time I think I understand, I reread it, and I realize how little I understand of of what's going on in these various sacrifices. So we're so we're talking about sacrifice. One of the things you'll notice right now, and this makes this really, really clear when you read these, is these sacrifices were not for intentional sin. They're for unintentional sin. For all the things that are are called sins of the high hand, sins that are defiant sins, they're not handled here. In fact, this is very explicit. Even in here it talks about you know, when you, by the time you get to even the, the peace offering, the sin offering, these are, these are for unintentional sins. These are sins that like, oh, okay, I didn't know I was impure. Now I got, need to get pure, right? These are th- and these are things, and later on you're going to find there are sacrifices for, like a woman having a child. There's going to be a burnt sacrifice and a sin. You're like, well, why is there a sacrifice for a woman having a child, right? Why, you, you know, your skin blemish. You have, you know, any, you know an emission from a man. You know, all these different things. You're why, why, you know, what's going on here? You realize these are none of these are for defiant sin. For the kind for for murder and adultery and all the other things that truly concern us, that's death or exile. There's no none of these things cover any of the sins that I worry about, right? When I stand before God, I'm not too worried about having a pimple or something. These are these are things that these are, these are the, the defiant sins. The high, sins of the high hand are the things that I truly, truly worry about. Yeah. So why Moses committed murder, yes. and David committed murder and adultery, yeah. and why were they executed? Yeah, good question. That's, that's a big thread, and, and they could have, right? Um, yeah, there, but even when you read in, in books of Moses, there were people that were preserved, but some that were executed, right? Now, that's a, that's a big tangent, right? Because there are levels of accountability, when God is present and his spirit is manifest, the accountability level is very high. Even when you get to Annas and Sapphira in the book of Acts, you know, that's... You, you, you defy in the face of that, you're dead, right? You defy in the face of a God who's just part you through the Red Sea, you're dead meat, right? Now, as time goes on, right, your, your levels of accountability aren't always the same. So I think... You're, that judgment is always going to be compensatory to your accountability at the time. The woman that was taken in adultery and mm-hmm. he wanted to kill her, but Jesus stopped that. Yeah. In the New Testament. Yeah. Yes. Something major change in the New Testament. Yes, for sure. That's a big subject. Hold on to that thought, okay? Um, um, I don't want to I don't want to eat up the rest of the class with that, but these are good. But my my point here is you read these 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 sacrifices really are our, our purification ritual sacrifices allowing you to enter into the presence of God, enter into worship kinds of things right these burnt these sacrifices They're, and in fact, some of these have nothing to do with blood at all like you read the grain sacrifice right it's just, you know you're bringing fine flour that 's unleavened and with oils and, and frankincense and you're baking these you know th- so and, you know, you can see even the sin offering, you think, well, that's got to be one for sin. But it, this, it's very explicit. These are for people that sin unintentionally. This, is, this isn't sin like I think of sin, the sins that I worry about kind of things. None of these things handle any of that. Even, even the guilt sins, right? You become, you become aware that, like, oh, I was supposed to go testify to the judge, and I just kind of, I kind of lost my, forgot about it then you've got to go through this. That's a sin of, there's a reparations, right? There's, there's other kinds of um, sacrifices. There's the wave offerings where you're just offerings of thanksgiving. But none of them handle the sin that, I, that you and I probably worry about. Right? There's all these elements. So what, what's going on with these? And of course, thankfully, we have the book of Hebrews to help us out a little bit. But the idea of atonement here is this purification, this cleansing, is to be able to enter into these sacred spaces Re- requires very, very much care. You know, Moses had to even take off the sandals on his feet in that burning bush. There's, 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 air, there's sanctified areas where God's presence is manifest that you don't walk in without being cured and cleansed. And so, so you're going to find there's lots of texts dedicated to just the idea of being ritually pure, ceremonial clean, and it required the blood of lots of animals for this. Now, of course, by the time you get to the book of Hebrews, it makes clear, I mean, Hebrews makes it very clear in chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats do not satisfy God's, you know, that, that, had, that had no effect in the kinds of sin that you and I worry about. But it was, death, it, was, it was death of Christ, death of the Son, that one sacrifice once and for all actually was able to deal with not just, you know, sins of unintentional sins that I don't worry about too much, but the sins of the high hand which I am guilty of, right? I've, I've, I've knowingly sinned many times in my life, defiantly. Those are the ones I worry about. Jesus' death, the superiority of Christ's sacrifice, is what's going to handle those. But these are still important. These are there for a reason. These are symbols. These are things. You, when you enter into the presence of God, it's a very, very serious matter. It requires, um, requires the... Sh- the shedding of blood. So um, so a lot to be so so be aware of that when you read when you read these things it's it's there's something else going on. This is not just you know the Old Testament way of, of handling, you know, sin, right? No, there was other ways. You, if you committed adultery, right? I mean, there's no you're not going to go do a sacrifice. You're done, right? you you know, that's the end, right? So that's not what a lot of these levitical these levitical sacrifices were for. So that becomes sort of clear. Does that make kind of make sense? You, you ever, I sh- no, I'm going to plead ignorance on a lot of these. I still don't even begin to appreciate the details that are in these and why why they go about the things they do, right? So <coughs> there's a lot of large commentaries on these that talk about these things, but there's deep. That's the first thing I know that these this here idea of atonement is is purification being being allowed to enter into these holy spaces, and there's no provision whatsoever for defiant sins in any of these sacrifices. It's just not there. So, um, okay. Yeah. Could you comment? In chapter 6. It seems like of Numbers or of Exodus? Of Leviticus. Leviticus. sorry. It seems like those don't cross the line into the fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, you're going to... Yes, yes. Good. So you you're you're bringing in which verse? Yeah. Yeah, when it's when a it, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and disavows the rightful claim of his neighbor regarding a deposit or security entrusted to him, regarding robbery or is extorted from his neighbor or is found was lost and lied about it. Yeah, so you're you're in you're definitely into you're into a territory that that seems like So what so where do you do with unintentional Where does the unintentional? Because I believe, yeah. So these that seems like intentional, right? If you're going to extort your neighbor, that seems intentional. So now now you've you've the waters are not clear to me. They're a little bit muddy. I, I don't. I, I'm glad you bring these up because I I don't have a full answer to this. But when you get to Numbers 15, this. See what this says. If you've been reading through, you probably so. So, verse 27. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year female goat for a sin offering. Right. So there the sin offering is for an unintentional sin. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray by an unintentional sin, making atonement for him so that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for the native among yourself, and it goes on, you know, for, any, you know, the, for anyone who does anything wrong unintentionally, at the end of verse 29, but the person who does wrong defiantly, verse 30, whether he is a native or a stranger, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people, which is a euphemism for either exile or death. Since he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So, there's something going on here that there's, a, this, there's unintentional sins and then there's, there's the, the sins of the high hand, I think is the literal word for that. These, these defiant sins where God commands this and you go against it. And I think any of the things in the Ten Commandments right would, would be in that sin of a defiant sin. Right? So there's something going on here. Now, Hebrews makes it clear that these sins were not efficacious in forgiveness of sins. They didn't, they didn't really do any good. There's something else. But, but Christ's death, So, Christ's death is the one that ultimately will handle all these sins, right? The 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 sins that I personally worry about more so than others, but yeah, that's why I I preface with these things are hard. I don't, I don't, I can't do a full exegesis on what all this means, but it's but it's clear that there's something going on here for which defiant sins. Now the sins, those are mentioned there. Those seem, at least in that going towards that defiant side, right? Not all sins are the same. I, I hear some Christians say, "Well, you sin is sin is sin." And no, right? There are some sins that are some sins are much worse than other sins, right? Jesus told Pilate, "You know, you know, you're you're guilty of a lesser sin, right?" There's, there's, there 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 are degrees, right, of sin, and, and the, the really the the sins for which I worry about. And of course, I would worry about the same sins you mentioned. But but there's no there doesn't seem to be any provision in these sacrifices for those defiant sins in these. So, in our regular confession, should that be something that we're confessing as our unintentional sin? Well, like if you extort somebody? <laughs> no, I'm just Yeah, if any, if if there's any wayward, you know, David, right? If there's any wayward, me, search my, search me out, find me, find the things that I don't even. I'm sure we offend God in many ways that we're not even conscious of, right? Yeah, I I mean, I think definitely, right? Those are things that you have to, definitely, should pray for. Yeah. 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 He doesn't know. He says kids are having feasts all the time. They're probably. There's something in their heart. They're not right. They don't got right. They probably don't even know it. I'm going to offer a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And David had that idea. Like, if there's anything, you know, search my heart. If there's anything unclean in me, let me know. Bring it to the surface. Let me let me deal with it. Um, in fact, I, I think in that case, there's a lot of sin that we don't. Sometimes when you sin, God will push you farther down that road. Make the sin be more manifest. The sin will become more evident in your life. There's an act of mercy, I think, there, right? You're taking something that, yeah, it's no big deal, but God is pushing you to the point where it manifests that, like, okay, I've really, know- I've knowingly crossed the line now, right? So, I definitely had that happen with me. Um, when I was in graduate school, I mean, my my work was my God. In I, every sense of the word, I was violating the first commandment. I worked seven days a week. I, you know, I was trying to, you know, trying to please your advisors and write papers, and, you know, and I was working all the time. And, and when you, when you sin, your sin isn't just confined to one part of your life, I find. Your sin begins to crop up. And all You know, it's like a plate glass window. You know, you touch the corner and you break the corner, the whole thing shatters. And, and I saw sin just cropping up. Things that were like, like, you might not think working around the clock and devoting your life to your work, that's not really sin, but when you, what other types of sin that you can't deny, okay, this is on its face sin, I, I'm sinning against God. Then you know, okay. Then my my unintentional sins have now manifested to clear, obvious sins. And I I think God pushes you that way. I think He'll push you, and He'll He'll push you down that road until you know that your sin is something that weighs heavy on you. Right? He certainly did that with David, right? There are a lot of times where David was going into something where you know they had to. Then he realizes, wait, there's more going on here. So, yeah. So, yeah, unintentional sin and sins of since, I, I, yeah, we, we, that is something to think about. We're, we can't enter into God's holy space. I mean, we know this all the way back to the garden. Right? Adam and Eve are now banished from the garden. You can't enter into those holy spaces anymore. Something has to happen. A death has to happen. To enter in. We're not suitable for heaven as we are. Something has to happen. We, 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 to be in the presence of God would be death. But there's going to come a day when it says we'll see Jesus face to face. We'll see God face to face. We can't do that now, right? That's that's surely death. Something has to happen. Something right and I think I think that's I don't know a lot of what's going on in the Levitical sacrificial system, but part of this idea of of you can't enter into God's presence. That's what's so important when in Hebrews it says says after he died, you know, when the temple veil ripped in two at Christ's crucifixion, that was a very meaningful event. Because now, now it says we can enter in to his throne with full confidence through his grace. Right? That sacrificial system has now become obsolete. And through Christ's blood, that's done. You can, we can walk right into the Holy of Holies through Jesus' death. Jesus' death is far superior for which these things are shadows. So you at least walk away that there's a serious, there's a very serious thing about entering into sacred space where God is. There's something about a holy God that is to be fearful and understood. So you at least walk away with that much, with the, you know. So yeah, I don't have my head fully wrapped around these things, right? So I'll, I'll, again, I'll claim First Corinthians 13, right? Every Christian the love chapter, right? You know, for now we see in a mirror darkly, but then we'll see face to face, right? Even if you understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if you don't have love, right? None of this really matters anyway. So, but um, we didn't even get through half of my slides, and it's already past ten. <laughs> we'll continue next. That's fine. We'll continue because I want to get into this because I want to get into the Day of Atonement. So, if you ha- read Leviticus 16 by next week, and we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. Now, what's interesting is that is right in the center of the Torah. Right. If you're going to lay the Torah out and you pick the centerpiece, you get the Day of Atonement, and I think that's that's significant. That's right. When we get to Isaiah, we're going to realize that that Isaiah 53:12 is right in the center of, of that last part of Isaiah. Right. There's a reason. There's there's meaning to putting things in the center in the Bible. You know, you get these chiasmic structures in the Bible, and the important things are always kind of in the center. Right. So anyway, so read, We'll talk about the Day of Atonement next week, and. Um, we were, No way we're going to get to it today, so sorry about that. Yeah, and, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was supposed to leave time for questions and stuff, but, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, please. So bring your questions next week. And if there's anything on this that, that either is clear or muddy, you know, come next week and ask, because I, I don't know. Hopefully maybe someone here can answer. <laughs> so... Anyway, I'll close. Lord Jesus, um, so much we don't understand about you, but we know you are a holy God and and we thank you for your son and his sacrifice and what he's done and and, uh, we look forward to the time we will see you face to face and, and we thank you for what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen. All right. To be continued.